This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, today we're going to pick up the story in Exodus. I'm actually going to start in 418, just after the burning bush. And I want to encourage you to grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you or pull it up on your phone or however you access God's Word and follow along with me. The, the bulk of the Scripture is not going to be on the screens because I'm going to read through the story. I'd like you to read along. I think it's really helpful when we can do that sometimes. Um, so let's start uh, with four, chapter 4, verse 18. And despite Moses' reluctance... Because basically, he's, uh, I, I love uh, at the uh, 4.13, says, But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. It just doesn't get any more direct than that, does it? Not me, God. Choose somebody else. So despite his reluctance, though, after God gives him an abundance of instructions and empowers him, We find out in verse 18, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Remember, it's been 40 years. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But he refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Um, Let me pause for just a minute and say, uh, when Pastor Steve and I talked about this sermon, um, I was given the opportunity to either... Uh, preach on the plagues, and we went back and forth, which would be, you know, or on this promise kind of to redeem the, um, and I've chosen that, obviously. And I want to encourage you that if you would like to know more about the plagues, more about God hardening um, Pharaoh's heart, I would encourage you to watch the Bible Project video on the first half of the book of Exodus. It's a wonderful little kind of parallel. When we think about the plagues, it's almost overwhelming to think about, isn't it, that, that those kinds of things happened. Uh, I was talking with Kathy Kusky in the booth this morning, and she'd said that some people speculate perhaps what happened was that in the Red Sea was that there was red algae or something, and I think God said it was blood, though. And we can't imagine that. However, this week you may have heard about something that happened in California where more than 97,000 gallons of red wine spilled from a tank at a vineyard in Sonoma County and eventually leaked into the Russian River. I mean, and what that, that amount is, uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon, which is what it was, some of you are going, that's a shame, enough to fill eight large tanker trucks spilled at the Rodney Strong Vineyards in Harrodsburg Wednesday, 
um, after a door near the bottom of a blending tank popped open. And now, lest you're on your phone right now planning a vacation from the Russian River, let me just say that clearly it got diluted. And what happened in Egypt was that the river did not turn to wine. It did not. That wasn't what was happening there. So if you want to study a little more about the plagues, I would strongly encourage you to watch that video as we're not going to talk directly about the plagues this morning, but about the God who had the power to do that in order to free his people. So uh, Moses uh, at first, oh, let me finish this passage. Let me go back. I want to read starting in verse 27 now of chapter four. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him Remember, they've not seen each other for 40 years, these brothers. And then Moses told Aaron everything that the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worship. So when Moses first arrives in Egypt, it seems to go well. The elders come together, they believe his words, um, and they bow down in worship. And there are moments in worship services on Sunday morning when there's a testimony or Uh, The word is opened and it speaks to our hearts and often we, our response is worship. There's a reason why we worship after the sermon because we want our hearts to respond in worship. But I'm here to tell you that what happens in us must take us also into the week. So it's not just that moment of worship, but it's when we must live it out that it becomes a little bit more difficult. So now let's start in chapter 5. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And that was part of God's instructions. And Pharaoh said, and you have to understand, this Pharaoh was one of the cruelest kings uh, in history, um, he was, he was evil. And uh, this is what he says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? After all, he considered himself a God. Who is this God that I should have to let them go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Um, and then they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Again, that was what God told them to say. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So let me pause right there. Um, Oh, let me, one more verse. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. And then Pharaoh said, look at the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. Now, I don't know about you, but I can understand Moses' and Aaron's trepidation uh, in terms of going to Pharaoh. In fact, the reality is uh, when God, um, but, what, but what is being set up here, by the way, is a confrontation between God and Pharaoh that is going to set the people up, both Israel and 
possibly many of the Egyptians, to know the true God. And by the way, uh, what we know is that uh, Moses and Aaron had been told uh, in chapter 3 to take the elders of Israel with them. But but by the time they actually go to Pharaoh, apparently the elders do not go with them. God also told them back in chapter 3, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God's trying to let them know this is not going to be easy. But the reason it's not going to be easy is because I want to work on your behalf. I want you to know that it is not you, it's not your confrontation that causes Pharaoh to let the people go, but rather it's my work on their behalf. And thus begins a battle, but it's not a battle between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, but between the I am that we learned about at the burning bush and Pharaoh. God is the one that Pharaoh is opposing. And it, but it's going to feel to Moses and the people like they are the ones in the crosshairs. And isn't that often how we feel? God, you promised to deliver, but it feels like everything's coming down on me. Now, Moses begins with the words that God told him to speak in chapter 3, verse 18. He asked that the people be let go to worship God in the wilderness. And And God had warned Moses ahead of time, numerous times, that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. And then Moses was to say, when when he sensed that hardening of Pharaoh's heart, Moses was to say, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I have told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And apparently, it was God's intention that Moses say that right up front when asking to be released. But this is noticeably absent in Moses' words, though it will come later, obviously. And it's replaced with, Moses says, Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues and with the sword. But God had never said that. God didn't say that. In fact, it was God's intent to strike the Egyptians with plagues and the sword, not Israel. Moses also neglects in this situation to do the signs and wonders. Instead, it seems like he almost resorts to plea bargaining with Pharaoh. Now, I don't know why he did that, but I can sure relate. Because there's times when God tells me to do something, and I'm partly obedient I do some of it, but then my human brain begins to work, and I begin to think, well, I don't know if that's going to be so effective. I'm not sure that's going to work. I wonder if we just kind of soften it down or change it up a little bit. Um, And I think that may be what's happening here to Moses. And Pharaoh's response is, I don't know your God. I don't know this God. I don't care about this God. And I am not going to let you go have a worship retreat in the wilderness. The question of who is the Lord that Pharaoh raises 
is really a theme you can pull all the way through the book of Exodus. Who is this God? Who is this God? And it's an underlying theme, but not just for Pharaoh, for God's people all the way through the wilderness. God is revealing himself to them, and he is saying, will you worship me? Will you obey me? Do you believe who I am? And that question is still true for us today. So Moses becomes for us an example of someone who embarks on a lifelong pursuit of understanding who I am, that name that God gave himself is, and what it means to obey his voice. And that same journey is the one we are invited to go on as Christ followers. I think about Paul's words in Philippians 3 where he says, and um, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Uh, Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, just as God invited Moses and the people to see his power demonstrated and participate in his sufferings and become like him in death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We too are invited to know Jesus in that way. Now, we no longer hear God's voice from a burning bush or, as later we're going to see, from a burning mountain or even from a law. We hear God through the voice of the Holy Spirit, the one who's sent to remind us of Jesus and all that he taught and who he is and this Jesus who ushers in this new kingdom. So Moses, through constant trials and struggles, is going to discover what we're going to discover too, and that's that this great I am, this Yahweh, is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which we're going to see when we get to Exodus 33, 18. This is a God who is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's difficult for us to understand, except maybe through our own experience, why this rescue mission starts with such hope. The people believe, they worship God, Moses has been given signs and wonders, and, and there's, you know, everyone, yes, we're going to be freed. It starts with such hope on the part of the people, and then it seems to be immediately crushed with the response of Pharaoh. And so let's read Exodus again 5. We read verse 4, where he says, why are you taking the people away? There's no way I'm going to let you do that. And then verse um, 6 That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the word work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Now, I know that some of you feel like maybe in your job, occasionally the straw gets taken away. And you're required to keep the same quota going. And uh, I've had that conversation with many people who at times feel like their workplace is made much more difficult. But this was, I mean, before apparently the Egyptians had given them the straw to make the bricks, and now they take that away. 
Verse 10, then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw, go get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And when Pharaoh's and Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks uh, yesterday or today as before? So this is utterly discouraging for the people. And it underscores the cruelty and the evil of this king of Egypt. And really, his plan is quite strategic. He beats the overseers, the Israelite overseers, to drive a wedge between them and the people to break up the unity of the people in their desire to be set free and makes their work exponentially harder than before. What's really interesting to me at this point in the story is for years we're told that the people have been crying out to God. That's part of why God responds at the burning bush because the people have been crying out to him for years. But now look at who they cry out to. Verse 15 Then the Israelite overseas went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. So now, fearing that God is not in this with them, they cry out to Pharaoh. And when we feel like God has failed us, When we cannot trust a God who seems not to be present, we often will resort to reshaping our image of ourselves as faithful servants of what only we will become servants to whatever gods we find ourselves serving rather than the God. Whatever God has power over us, we will turn to that one rather than to God. And this is what happens. The people turn to Pharaoh for some relief, but they get none. Because what is Pharaoh's reply to them? You're just all lazy. If you think you have time for a worship retreat, then I'm not working you hard enough. And, um, and so after that, they can't even turn to a human god for relief. They do what most of us do when we're backed into a corner. They blame. Look at the next couple verses. Verse 19, the Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. They have put a a sword in their hand to kill us. They blame Moses. Of course they do. Of course they do. And then what does Moses do? He does exactly what Adam did. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you've not rescued your people at all. Moses, I wonder, is not only facing this crisis of faith about whether God is really in this and going to do what he says, 
But I wonder if also he's feeling like he has failed once again. And once again, he does, has no favor with the people who raised him, the Egyptians, and he's being rejected by his own people, the Israelites. How does he go on from here? Well, in 6.1, we read about how, what God's response to Moses was. And I don't know about you, but when I read Moses' response, there's a little piece of my heart that thinks, okay, God, take him out. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, if he has that little trust in you, how good a leader is he going to be? But that's not what God does because God is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So God says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. First time the word redeem is used in scripture. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to a land I swore with an uplifted hand to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And I will give you as a possession. I am the Lord. And every time you see that word Lord in there, that is that name, I am. I am and I will be. In many ways... This is the same message that God gave to Jehoshaphat when he stood before a mighty army many years later. In 2 Chronicles 20, God said to Jehoshaphat, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all those who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. You will not have to fight in this battle Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. This is the same message that God is giving to Moses. Uh, because God is saying, because I am the great I am, it's my mighty hand that will accomplish this. Regardless, Moses, of your struggle. Regardless of your lack of faith, regardless of the fact that you are struggling so deeply in seeing me in this. Um, God's name, I am, uh, revealed to Moses, is a name that had not been revealed before. B 
Before that, God had been essentially El Shaddai, God Almighty. But now God reveals himself in a new way to these people. I am and I will be. And I will be seen through these great works, these great miraculous works that I'm doing. In many ways, we just celebrated the signs and wonders that accompanied the birth of a baby who was the final act of redemption, the final act of redemption. And this name, I am and I will be, that became known as Yahweh, or in some cases, it'll have just the four letters, H uh, or Y-H-W-H, ushers in a new age in Israel's story where God says, I am and I will be with you. You know, there are times when the delay in God's response is actually what we need. But that's really hard for us to understand, isn't it? We kind of would like him Johnny on the spot, right? Right there when we need him. But we see it's often how God works through the biblical narratives, demonstrating to us that in the darkest moments, God seems, when God seems most absent, that's when his presence is about to be made known. Think back in your own life. And I'll bet some of you who have been walking with God and aware of his work in your life know this to be true. And I can't think of help of another moment when all hope seemed lost for a little band of men and women who had come to believe that the man that they were following was the Messiah. Only then he was killed and hung on a cross and died. And they thought it was all over. But the reality is, it was right before God was going to show up in a presence that had never been seen before in the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. Moses struggles with his call, with his inadequacies. But this is another opportunity to remember that Moses was not called when he was, uh, you know, strong in speech and in action as one who had grown up in an Egyptian household. He was called when he became a shepherd. And a shepherd who felt a deep sense of inadequacy. And of course, we know that King David was called to be a leader, but first he was a shepherd. And when Jesus comes in John chapter 10, he will call himself the good shepherd, the great shepherd. I often wonder, you know, over the years, I was a quite a, you know, someone who followed a lot of the leadership things that were happening in evangelical Christendom and all of the leadership movements, and and I loved all the things that I learned. And then towards the end of that movement, I began to struggle because I realized that perhaps the greatest qualification for leadership in the church is that one have the heart of a shepherd. But I'm here to tell you that in 20th and 21st century America, that's not always what we wanted. But that's what we need. We need a shepherd. We need people with shepherding hearts, servants' hearts. This great I am who revealed himself to Moses also gets revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of John, there are at least seven statements where Jesus basically says, I am. I am. I am the I am. 
And the people of Israel would have known what he was saying. That's why it made them so angry. One of those encounters is with a woman in uh, Samaria, Samaria, in a little town called Sychar. And Jesus shows up at this place, very beginning of his ministry. And this woman is a woman who's lived a life of brokenness and failure. We find out as the story unfolds that she has been married four times. And, and by the way, a woman couldn't file for divorce in that day. That means four men said to her, I don't want you anymore. You're out of here. And she was sent away with a certificate of divorce in her hand. And apparently, after the first divorce, three more men were willing to marry her. But each one of them also kicked her out. And the man she was now living with hadn't even bothered to marry her. We don't know if she was difficult to get along with. I don't know. Uh, We don't know if she left children behind in every one of those marriages. She was a broken woman at the well in the middle of the day. We don't know why, but possibly to avoid the other women who would have gone in the morning and the evening. But there she is, and Jesus arranges to be the only one there, and they engage in a discussion about living water. Living water. And when Jesus offers this great gift to her, of course, she says, this would be wonderful. I wouldn't be thirsty, and I wouldn't have to come all the way out to the well to draw water. And I might have a bargaining chip with other people. And so when Jesus reveals that he knows about her history, her assumption is, well, this is it. This is the end of this conversation. But it's not. And when she, uh, she kind of tries to change the subject, if you read the story in John chapter 4, she changes the subject and she basically says, I don't go to your church. And uh, we don't, you know, our people worship on this mountain and you people worship in Jerusalem. And eventually Jesus says, the God that you're looking for is looking for you. And she finally is reduced to what she, the only thing she knows, which is they talk about a Messiah. They talk about a Messiah. And when he comes, he'll make sense of everything. That's my paraphrase, but that's basically what she says. This Messiah, he'll make, and Jesus looks at her and says, I am. I am that Messiah. And she is radically transformed by his love and acceptance of her right where she is. God continues to be faithful to a Samaritan woman, just as he was faithful to Moses, even in his struggle with obedience, even with his failure, even with his doubt. And God will be faithful to you as well. Father, we come before you this morning and we, we recognize that we are slaves. We are slaves to God, some of which we don't even know. And when we struggle, sometimes we cry out to those gods, little g-gods, But this morning, we want to cry out to you. We trust you to redeem us and release us from that slavery so that we can follow you, even through the wilderness, with obedient hearts and worship you. We're so grateful that you did this for the Israelites 
and that you will do this for us as well. Amen. Isn't that good news? That that's who he is? And aren't you glad that the Bible includes the story of people just like us? I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that we can enter into Moses' story right where he was the weakest, right where he struggled, because that same Moses is going to walk the people through all of those plagues, and eventually he will say those words to Pharaoh. God is going to take your firstborn son. But all of that was done to point forward to the day when God would give, would take his own firstborn son as a sacrifice for our sin. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week at Passover. So may the God who is faithful, despite our unfaithfulness, may the God who redeemed bless you and go with you. And may you know that God who is abounding in love and mercy and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Amen. Amen.